You're listening to a podcast from BJSM. Hello, and welcome to the Sports Medcast, brought to you by the American Medical Society for Sports Medicine and the British Journal of Sports Medicine. We are your hosts for the next 20 to 30 minutes of sports medicine greatness. My name is Dr. Scott Young, and I'm an emergency and sports medicine physician on the East Coast of the U.S. And my name is Dr. Cole Taylor. I'm a family medicine and sports medicine physician. We're going to present topics in the field of sports medicine to you through this podcast, which will be available on the AMSSM and BJSM websites for free. If you're a medical provider caring for athletes at any level, this podcast is for you. We plan to provide you with useful information, whether you're someone who's been working out on the pitch for years or you have no prior sports experience. In the coming months, we look forward to bringing you the best topics, the best speakers, and pearls that you can take with you the next time you practice medicine. Outstanding, and we're obviously looking for a global audience because Scott just used the word pitch, and I'm pretty sure he does not typically use that when discussing sports. Hey, we're not talking about baseball. All right. Well, I was thinking about what we should start with and what would be a good first topic, and you know what? It's hot outside. It's blazing hot. You see everybody talking about temperatures, 120 degrees in their car, cooking eggs on the rocks, cooking Rice Krispie treats on their uh, car dash. I thought, what a perfect area to start in terms of a, a sports medicine topic, and that's with regards to heat injury and heat illness. But if we're going to talk about these top of, type of topics, Scott, we need experts in the field, and it would be really nice if we had somebody that was an expert in heat illness and injury to talk to. I agree, and that expert is definitely not us. So I'm really excited to introduce our first guest, Dr. Fran O'Connor. Dr. O'Connor is the chair of military medicine at the Uniformed Services University, the former president of the American Medical Society for Sports Medicine, and a current consultant for the Marine Corps Marathon. He's been involved in heat injury research his entire career, and he is absolutely the right guy to be talking about this subject with us. Thanks for being here with us today, Dr. O'Connor. I'd like to present you with just a a hypothetical case and then talk through uh, some of the information associated with the treatment and fault and whatnot. So we have a, we're working in a race tent, let's say it's the Marine Corps Marathon, and a 20s appearing female runner is brought to the aid station tent at the end after collapsing at the finish line. Her bib has no medical information and she is not answering questions coherently. So I think at this point we all understand the ABCs, airway, breathing, and circulation, but what are some other assessment priorities we should be looking at here in this patient? Uh, well, thanks, Scott, for having me, first of all. I, I think the, uh, the priorities, in addition to the ABCs, most importantly in the uh, race medical tent, is a good cognitive assessment, your ability to say, is this patient normal or do you suspect some kind of acute delirium? And then, of course, a complete set of vital signs, ultimately um, uh, your temperature, your blood pressure, and your heart rate are really going to guide you. But temperature is key uh, in the mass participation event scenario. And uh, as we're kind of gathering this information, um, you know, we're, we're working it up, we're getting the temperature, uh, what, what differential should I be considering? What, what should be uh, going on in the back of my head as far as potential causes? Well, you know, there, there are a lot of things you're thinking about in the tent all at once. And, of course, these patients are coming many times in a mass casualty type presentation. Uh, we're thinking about, of course, the algorithm for the collapsed runner. Uh, you know, Timothy Noakes uh, years ago, talked about uh, a differential that's serious versus non-serious. Of course, serious, we're immediately risk stratifying with our ABCs. Is this patient in cardiac arrest? Is there obvious anaphylaxis, an asthmatic attack? Or do they have a bracelet to suggest uh, hypoglycemia in a diabetic that you would immediately take action on? But the most common thing you're going to see in the medical time, of course, are the non-serious um, up front, like exercise-associated collapse, 
Um, and some of the other things in that category that you're going to be able to pick out that may bump you over to the serious would be exertional heat stroke, um, exertional hyponatremia, and exercise-associated muscle cramps. I think in the scenario, Scott, that you just asked me about where you got a 20-year-old collapsing, I'm also processing where did she collapse? Uh, is it the finish line? Is it uh, somewhere else on the course? Uh, clearly, literature tells us that uh, collapses on the course tend to be more ominous than those collapses at the finish line tend. Um, is this someone who just finished between two and a half and three and a half hours who was running at a high intensity, who maybe has a greater risk for exertional heat stroke? Is she middle of the road, which might be more of an EAC or exercise-associated collapse presentation? Or is this a, you know, a five to six and a half hour marathoner that I'm thinking about exertional hyponatremia? Might have been her first race. So knowing that information, when did she finish? Uh, what's my environmental temperature out there? Is it cold? Is it hot? Um, really gives me a lot of information as I approach the vital signs and I approach the uh, cognitive assessment. Well, that's great information. So you mentioned the vital signs a couple of times, especially temperature. So one of the problems that I know I've had in the past is you get these patients in the finish line tent or wherever, and you want to do a rectal temperature because you want to get the most accurate assessment of core temperature, but sometimes the patient's refusing. Who really needs a rectal temperature, and who can you get away with not doing a rectal temperature? I think it's a great question, and it's a difficult one, especially in a busy medical tent where you are uh, rapidly triaging patients. And I think you raise a good point, Scott. You know, everybody who comes through the medical tent certainly does not need a complete set of vital signs with a rectal temperature. Uh, you could argue it's very invasive, um, uh, you know, on these patients. That being said, uh, I think it's very clear in the literature and it's standard of care that if a patient comes in and they show cognitive dysfunction to include they are collapsed, you know, or unconscious, or they have an acute delirium-type presentation, uh, in this scenario, you need a rectal temperature. So, as you just described, you've got a 20-year-old. Uh, she is um, uh, not cooperating. You don't understand what's going on. She's not clear. She may be delirious. I've seen patients like this who are, frankly, psychotic. And she may actually be refusing, saying, no way are you going to do this rectal temperature. You have to move forward. You have a team generally with you at the Marine Corps Marathon. We're fortunate. We have heat teams of four or five bodies to include Marines. Uh, but you need that information. Uh, because it may be life-saving information. On the other hand, if it's a patient who's not frankly delirious and a patient who maybe had a swoon uh, in the race chute, uh, she's coming alert very quickly, you feel very comfortable as a clinician, I think you have that opportunity to watch uh, for a short period of time before you make that call. But if there's any question in your mind, um, I think better off more information. Information's power, and you should move forward with the rectal. So you're saying basically if somebody's obviously altered, clearly psychotic, even if they're refusing, we really shouldn't move forward with that rectal temp because that information is key in, in making the right diagnosis and treating them appropriately versus somebody who is comes around pretty quickly, is basically normal mentation, acting normal, alert and oriented, those are the kind of people that we can hold off and watch them for a little bit without forcing a rectal temperature. Absolutely. Uh, but you need that information. Many people will say, well, well, geez, why not just treat? Well, you need to know. You need to know because the algorithm is so different up front. You know, is this someone who has exertional hyponatremia? Uh, is this someone who has exertional heat stroke? Or is it hypoglycemia that you're missing? 
Uh, so that rectal temperature really guides you right away. It's also very valuable information for that physician who's going to follow up and make the tough call. It's going to be very important information to the emergency room doc, like you, Scott, uh, who's going to get this patient in, uh, you know, 45 minutes to a couple of hours. Where was the temperature? What's the trend? What's happening? Uh, what did you observe? Um, other key things I'm looking for in addition to that temperature and cognitive assessment is I'm always looking for the patient who uh, is not a, a, a flaccid type collapse, but who's rigid. Um, rigidity is going to prompt me to think that uh, maybe this is that one in a thousand patient who is a malignant hyperthermia, that I'm going to notify the emergency room that I'm going to need dantrolene uh, because there is that relationship between exertional heat stroke and uh, malignant hyperthermia. And I also need to know that temperature, Scott, to say they're 107, I'm intervening with cooling, it's 40 minutes, they're not cooling. What drugs are on board? Do they have amphetamine? Have they taken a, um, a dietary supplement that has an amphetamine-like effect? Um, or are they on an antihistamine? Something that's sabotaging my cooling. So I really need to know the baseline. And it needs to be rectal. Uh, rectal clearly is a standard of care. It's the best thing we have in the field uh, to really know where your patient is. You mentioned that. I mean, this is a female patient. We've got a crowded race tent. Uh, do we, I mean, do we have any other options? Is there anything out there at all that can measure core temperature even close to rectal? Um, yeah, there are a couple things that you can do. You could try an oral. You could try um, a temporal. But the literature tells us in that someone who's been exercising and, in, and is hot, those are not reliable measures. The only thing that has been shown in the literature to be reliable in someone who's exercising and generating exercise-induced hyperthermia is a rectal temperature. If you had someone who was going to drop an esophageal probe, you know, or something, <laughs> you know, you might have that capability. But no, I, I think uh, in 2013, in the big race tents uh, and over in Europe, uh, it's a rectal. Rectal is the standard, and uh, we shouldn't feel embarrassed. Uh, we want to save a life here. Rectal is the standard of care. It's great advice, and I, I, I'm certainly not dropping a, an esophageal uh, probe, so I, I'm going to stick with the advice on the rectal temp there. So, okay, uh, you've given us some, some great information here. Let's fine-tune the case just a little bit. We, we get those vital signs, and the blood pressure is 80 over palp. The heart rate is 147. The SATs are 94%, and that core temperature comes back at 107. So with that core temperature of 107 and this these mental status changes that we're seeing, we're starting to kind of go into that heat stroke direction. What are our management priorities? How are we going to move forward with this patient? Well, you know, as you both know, uh, the management still remains ABC. You've got to protect that airway, breathing and cooling, or excuse me, breathing and circulation. But bottom line up front in this patient with a 107 uh, is they need to be cooled. They need to be cooled emergently. But as you also know, we don't do things serially. We do them in a parallel fashion at the Marine Corps Marathon and other big tents, there are teams that are operating. Someone's starting an IV. Uh, maybe just a line until we have more information to know what the electrolytes are. Um, someone is uh, watching the airway, but someone is initiating cooling. And in the Marine Corps Marathon, you know, we execute as a team with cold water immersion. Okay, but cooling is the priority. You mentioned the blood pressure is 80 over pelt. By far and away, the most important intervention is to cool that skin, create a gradient, and by cooling the skin, 
and shutting down a lot of that vascular supply to the skin, you actually facilitate an autotransfusion, you know, of all that blood that's out on the skin trying to cool, going back to the central circulation. So that's probably your fastest way to raise blood pressure, increase coronary perfusion, decrease the risk of uh, cardiac complications by cooling. But at the same time, you got a, an IV going or a HEPLOC, normal saline, generally safe. Uh, hopefully you're doing an assessment right there uh, to get a quick sodium on the patient, but they're hot, they need to be cooled. And I've seen the setup that you guys have there at the Marine Corps Marathon, and it, it's impressive, and it's, it's built to be able to handle these types of cases. But I've been in a situation myself in an urgent care clinic where I didn't have access to a big ice tub and cold water immersion. What, what can I do in that situation? What's one of the, what are the most effective ways of cooling a patient uh, in that type of situation? Yeah, no, you raise a very good point. And certainly as military physicians, you know, we know you're not necessarily going to have ice out in an area where it's 130 degrees. Uh, you want to maximize convection. So anything you can do to facilitate convection by moving air quickly over the patient. Um, University of Connecticut research shows that um, a very effective technique is rotating cool towels or ice across major vessels, axilla groin, key being rotating. Uh, you just can't put some cool towels on there and expect them to do the job every uh, you know, five minutes or less. You should be rotating them from a cool ice chest of water. Um, you also know, uh, you should be aware, you know, in the military we have a very effective treatment called the ice burrito. And the ice burrito is where we uh, have a barrel filled with cool sheets. Uh, you wrap these cool sheets around uh, the patient, and you have one sheet going over the top of the head. You literally turn them such that the patient is the meat inside the burrito while you're waiting for 911. I think the key is um, movement, whether it's movement of air or migration of a cooling technique, ice, cool sheets, anything, convection, and get help. Got to move them. That's great. And, and so if, if we're, we're doing this, we're following this, and we've done a good job, and we've done exactly what we need, and we now get that temperature down, or it's starting to come down, what's our end point? I mean, where, where are we going to stop? Yeah, that's uh, another good question. Uh, most authorities are going to recommend that you want to stop cooling between 101 and 102. So when they reach that temperature, and that generally takes, uh, in someone like the, your scenario here, 107, now that might take 15 to 20 minutes uh, to cool them. Uh, generally takes a little time to stabilize, and then the temperature starts to drop. Um, so um, 101 to 102, another sign say you don't have the ability to get that uh, erectile thermistor like we do, and you're checking periodically erectile temperature. If the patient um, begins to shiver, seriously shiver, that's also a good sign, you know, that it's probably time to stop the cooling. Okay, so those are the two rules that I use, 101 to 102, um, shivering, Otherwise, you may overshoot and you know, cause hypothermia. Then you're treating hypothermia. Yeah, and you mentioned the shivering. H have you ever seen a case where a patient begins to shiver, but they're still at an elevated core temperature that you'd want to continue to treat, so much so that you had to treat the shivering? Or is it your experience and what you've seen in the literature that when most people start shivering, they are actually getting down to a point where they're at a, at a good temperature? Scott? I've also read all the literature, but my experience in the military, my experience um, in the uh, mass participation events is the latter that you just described, that uh, most people are hot. When you use cool water immersion, as you know, our technique at the marathon is they're in a gurney over a cool water tub, and we ladle cool water up and over the patient, is that most people do not shiver early on, and they don't shiver 
um, until, uh, you know, they're about 101, 102 in my experience. Now, people also talk about using uh, medications, benzodiazepines, things to stop shivering. Never had to do that. I've never had to do that. Um, but again, that's my experience with exertional heat stroke. Maybe a different scenario uh, with classic heat stroke. Okay, but certainly uh, in the military, as well as the Marine Corps, we do not prophylactically uh, give a patient uh, any kind of medication uh, for shivering. The other thing people talk about is seizures. Uh, you know, as you are cooling a patient, uh, could you potentially provoke a seizure? I've never seen one. I've never witnessed one. Uh, but we're standing by. Uh, hopefully, we've got the line in now with either uh, you know, Ativan or Valium if we needed to intervene. But personally, I have not witnessed one. That's great. So now we've gotten cooled and we've got to near our endpoint and it comes time to transition to EMS. What are some of the instructions we give EMS during the transport to the hospital, which may be in a big city like Washington, D.C. could be five minutes, but maybe in another location could be 20 minutes or 30 minutes. What does EMS need to be watching out for? What should they avoid? What are the things they need to do in that uh, transport process? Well, uh, you know, a couple things. Number one, they're certainly going to support vital signs. Uh, in general, patients who have had a heat stroke uh, may be volume depleted, uh, so they're going to be watching their heart rate, their blood pressure. It's been a lot of work done on people with heat stroke uh, to show that there is some temperature instability that follows, and they may bounce around a little bit uh, with temperature shooting, uh, you know, 101, 102, down into the mid-90s. So there will be some temperature instability. Um, but I think they need to watch, Scott, in particular for it to bounce, that if they did shoot back up, you know, 103, 104, uh, they should obviously intervene with cooling. There are interesting strategies that EMS may use. Uh, they may have cooling sheets. They may have ice. Uh, there's a lot of interest currently, uh, and we're certainly interested in that. I can't quote the literature on it, but uh, chilled saline you know, is a strategy that uh, people have used as well. But I think in that transport from the tent to the emergency room, the emergency room physician, they're watching for temperature instability and certainly supporting vital signs at this point. So just making sure the temperature, that they don't cool them too far, and also to make sure that the temperature comes back up, that they reinitiate the cooling process as necessary. Absolutely. Um, in heat stroke, exertional heat stroke, everything's about time, you know. If you have a patient who's hot and we cool early, they do very, very well. The longer you go, it's not how high the temperature is. I could care less if it's 107 to 110. It's how long were you hot. That's where the morbidity comes. Um, it, again, here, Scott, in my experience, if you've cooled a patient, uh, it's very unusual, in my experience, to see it bounce back up. They're going to demonstrate this instability. Uh, in my experience, inevitably, those people who have left the Marine Corps Marathon, inevitably, they're going to be cold, probably going to provide a blanket uh, because we've cooled them. Okay, I have not seen it shoot up. But if it is, I'm thinking, boy, is it missed malignant hypothermia? Do they have some drug on board? Um, or were we just off in what we did? But that's the exception. Yeah, that's great information. So once we get to the emergency department, obviously workup ensues. In general, or in this case as well, who, who can we send home and who needs to be admitted? Is there anybody we can send home from the race tent? If we get their their temperature, core temperature back to normal and the person says, I feel fine, I want to go, do those people, we just let them go and they can follow up on their own? Should they 
go to the hospital regardless? And then in the hospital setting, can we send somebody home from there? Or should they all be admitted? Oh, that's a great question. You know, Scott, this is even a, a debate with medical race directors on uh, you've had someone who's had a heat stroke, you're in the tent, clearly they're heat stroke. Over 104, they had some form of delirium. We call them a heat stroke. And one of the debates is, do they even all need to go to the emergency room? I think it all comes back once again to um, the duration of the morbidity. Um, how long were they hot? How long were they down when you're making the assessment? Our personal protocol is, I think you know at this point, if we treat you with cold water immersion, you're going to the emergency room. That's my personal belief. Okay, so now you're in the emergency room and the patient's being treated. I think the ER doc or the internist or family doc also needs to process who was the patient, how long were they down, how quick were they cooled, uh, what are the comorbidities. Um, one of the things that I have seen and I've witnessed over the years, Scott, is, and Cole, is that patients who have had a heat stroke, um, there's generally a reason. There's generally a reason. Um, I'm going to say eight to nine out of ten times. They had an occult infection, a bronchitis, a pneumonia, a sinusitis, a blister with a cellulitis. Um, they arrived the day before. They had very poor sleep. But there was something contributing. But occult infection is something that that ER doc needs to look for and potentially treat that might have tipped them over. In fact, um, in the military, and I know we're going to uh, wrap up with this, if I have absolutely no explanation for someone with a heat stroke, I'm going to get very serious in terms of uh, my further evaluation. But back into your question for that ER doc, I think he's processing or she processing that information, how long were they down, and now he or she has to focus on What's the morbidity right now? Um, knowing heat stroke, they need to be looking for end organ dysfunction. What's going on with the kidneys? Is there evidence of exertional rhabdo? Was there injury to the liver? What about the heart? And what about the brain? If that emergency room physician can assure themselves that cognitively the patient's recovered, there's no significant evidence of end organ damage affecting the kidneys, the liver, there's no rhabdo that seems to be uh, unfolding in front of them with... Um, uh, urine that's obviously uh, raising a suspicion. There's no evidence of pulmonary dysfunction with an acute respiratory distress syndrome. Um, then I think you can feel comfortable if that patient has good follow-up after you've observed for several hours that the patient's stable, you could discharge with good follow-up. Uh, if you do not have good follow-up, you have evidence of uh, end organ damage. One I did miss was the heart. That's something to look for as well. Uh, I think you really are obligated to admit uh, heat stroke kills. We have, uh, unfortunately, two or three uh, young men or women who die every year in the military. And as we know, the literature tells us the heat stroke deaths are climbing. I think the ER doc needs to be prudent, but he's looking for end organ damage and making an assessment of, um, of what's the follow-up on this patient. And that's you know, really good advice. You, you mentioned um, you know, ha having good follow-up. And if we take this now, you know, I'm, the, I'm the outpatient doc, I'm the family doc, and I'm seeing this individual in follow-up. I, I, I may not have been there at the race tent. I wasn't at the emergency room. <clears throat> Excuse me. I don't have all the details, but what's important as I'm managing this patient follow-up? What, what kind of return-to-play protocol are we going to come up with? What further testing needs to be done? How are we going to approach this with this patient? Yeah, uh, there are very few guidelines that are out there, but the one um, I think that remains the standard is that from the American College of Sports Medicine, 
and that the patient should follow up with their primary care doc, sports medicine doctor, Cole, like yourself, uh, follow up at least one week later, no earlier, you know, one week later. And at that point in time, Cole, you would review the history and you should target labs that are going to help you ascertain, is there evidence of end-organ dysfunction? What's going on if there was any evidence of rhabdo? Is there normal kidney function? Is their liver return, return to normal? Um, was there any pulmonary involvement, any cognitive involvement, but assessing end-organ dysfunction? If you feel good that one week out in your assessment, you've done your BUN and creatinine, the urine is clear, LFTs are returned to normal, I think in good conscience you can feel this patient is clear, and now you can return them. Now, inevitably, when the patient returns, they need to be subjected to a new acclimatization protocol. They're now behind the power curve, say it was a football player, um, or they're going to get back out with their running group. They need to reacclimatize. They need to take their time. They need to boot up slowly, and acclimatization generally takes two to three weeks, and then you would watch them unfold. For patients who have trouble reacclimatizing, that's now where you re-restratify them, and you might consider what else is going on here. Uh, could you assess, uh, uh, again, target organ that you might have missed before? Or this is where the literature tells us to consider something like a heat tolerance test, which is what we do at our lab. Yeah, you, you really made me think of something there. Talking about a football athlete going through this same type of scenario, and if you just simply release them back to the field, the, the coaches, uh, they may not understand this, this protocol and this acclimatization period that, that needs to happen. We've seen rules change in high school football and college football with periods of practice without pads and without contact and then slowly building them up. Whereas if you took this guy out for you know, a week or two and now put him back in, he may be you know, rejoining practice two weeks, three weeks into the process and he hasn't had the opportunity to acclimatize. So that was a great point and something that uh, I wasn't really thinking about until just now. Well, I think a really good point, you know, if we go up with a football player, here, Cole. And this is a protocol that we are working on right now. You, you have this heat stroke. This kid was um, maybe psychotic. He was squirrely. He had some cognitive dysfunction. I think you need to go through the mental drill to know, is he now cognitively normal? And we have a protocol now. We're going to be following people with some of the conventional testing we use, impact, neurocognitive assessments, because I believe, I can't validate this with information, but I believe if you have a heat stroke, and you injured your brain, and you return that young football player too early, maybe they're not cognitively prepared uh, as well as thermally prepared, but you might set this kid up for a concussive injury um, in that he's not cognitively prepared. So you've got to bear that in mind as well. I'm not saying to go so far as you need to impact test everybody sure. after a heat stroke, but someday in the future, it may be part of the algorithm or something you need to think about, especially if you have that information on a young uh, football player. Just something to think about. Absolutely. And, and you talked about also people needing some additional testing. Do you have any recommendations as far as those red flags or things to look for that are going to tell me this isn't just run of the mill. I need to do a little bit more than just return them to play. They need testing in a laboratory or I need to refer them to a heat specialist. Yeah. What's going to cue me uh, off on that type of, of uh, case presentation? Well, two things. You know, Number one, the literature says that if they've been unable to return and they're having heat intolerance, you might want to consider sending them to a lab for formal heat tolerance testing. Okay, and when we do that, we go ahead and we subject the patient to a two-hour heat load and we watch and see if they can thermoregulate. 
Uh, many people after a heat stroke have a transient loss of their ability to thermoregulate, and it may take months to recover. But that's the exception. Again, that would only be someone who has uh, failed to recover and you're now out four to six weeks. Now, the other one, though, I think you need to be on the lookout for as a uh, sports medicine physician is you got the kid, there's no explanation. You don't know why this kid had a heat stroke. I think you need to go back in history and query him or her about their family history for potentially malignant hyperthermia. Is there a family member who had anesthesia intolerance? Is there a family with frank malignant hyperthermia? Um, again, in the military, if there's absolutely no explanation, we would consider genetic testing as well as caffeine halothane contracture testing, which is a muscle biopsy. Okay, on that uh, young man or woman where it's a totally unexplained de novo heat stroke uh, where we have no clue what happened because there may be a link. That's great stuff, and uh, we're getting ready to wrap this up, but I really quickly wanted to ask, you know, if, from a primary care standpoint, we're always talking about prevention. So if we take a step back, I know you talked about a couple of things in the middle of that talk about medications or illness, but can you just give just a couple of quick pointers or tips for patients that haven't yet had heat stroke, but maybe they're getting ready for the race or they're getting ready for a, a big hike or the beginning of football season, what types of uh, tips or advice on prevention can you give? I think the most important one, Cole, is acclimatization. Um, you know, if you are going to do a race in a certain environment and you know the predictable temperature, you want to acclimatize to that temperature. Obviously, that takes uh, two to three weeks to acclimatize. So you want to parallel your training to the events you anticipate. Say you live up in Alaska and you're going to go run the Disney Marathon down in Orlando where it's going to be hot. You know, you've got to have a strategy. And part of that strategy might be getting to Orlando early you know, so that you can acclimatize to the temperature. Um, I think you need to know your own hydration strategy. Uh, we obviously just, uh, the recommendations right now are drink ad libitum, you know, but you need to maintain hydration. And I think the last thing is to know um, if you're sick. If something's going on, uh, it may not be your day, okay? And that, that event comes, it's a Marine Corps Marathon, but you've got a bad uh, cold that may be a bronchitis. Uh, it may be the better part of valor to say, you know what, I I'm not going to push it today or I'm not going to run. And that can it's be a, a tough thing for a lot of people. They've trained for a lot of months and getting ready for that race or whatever it might be. they got to dial it back or they're going to end up seeing guys like you and me. You got it. Well, that's phenomenal. Thank you so much, Dr. O'Connor, for coming on today to talk to us about heat injury. A lot of great clinical pearls in there, definitely stuff that we can use the next time we go to work. Thanks very much for coming on. Well, that was just very impressive and uh, really enjoyable discussion there with Dr. O'Connor. So, Scott, we're wrapping it up. What key points do you take away from our discussion today? Boy, so much I could pull out of that little talk that Dr. O'Connor just gave us. But I'll tell you, you know, as an emergency medicine guy, it was interesting to, to find out that I really need to look for a cause beyond just heat for producing a heat stroke in a patient. So really looking hard for infection, looking at their comorbidities. Why exactly did they have a heat stroke? It wasn't just because of the heat. You always want to look for a little bit more beyond that. And I thought it was also interesting. A lot of these patients present very hypotensive with low blood pressure and the, as an emergency medicine doc, my first thought is to jump on it with fluids or maybe perhaps a specific medication. But just knowing that cooling the patient will actually bring their blood pressure up without having to be directly addressed is, uh, is great. So I can really focus on getting them cooled off and not having to worry so much about that blood pressure, knowing it's going to respond to the cooling process. How about you, Cole? What did you pick up from this? 
Well, certainly take away uh, the whole concept of rectal temperature being the, the way to go in terms of checking core temperature at the event itself. Uh, I also took away just the whole return to play protocol, thinking about acclimatization and making sure that we ease them back, and then talking about the prevention, of course, and what you mentioned of looking for potential sources when they come in, but also thinking about those potential sources or contributing factors and giving your patients advice before they participate in these events. Absolutely. Well, thank you all for tuning in. If you have any questions or comments or have any suggestions for future episodes on the show, please feel free to email us at thesportsmedcast at gmail.com. And I'll tell you, Cole, it's mid-afternoon. It's hot outside. Let's go for a run. Sounds good. I'll see you out there. For more information about this program and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.